0: This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Maryland native Claire Jones. She's a garden designer, author, horticulturist, floral designer, and beekeeper. Welcome, Claire.
1: Hi, Kathy. It's
0: so good to have you on. So Claire and I have known each other for years, uh, both as professional garden communicators and members of the Garden Comm Association. And today I wanted to talk to Claire all about keeping backyard honeybees. Uh, But before we dive into that, Claire, I wanted uh, you to tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your background. You have so many different hats, like many of us, and I think you work for yourself as well as a solopreneur. So there's so many different um, avenues we can explore. Let's start with um, your garden designer background.
1: Okay, well, um, I design gardens and I own a landscape design build service. And that just means I go out to people's houses and see that what they want to do. And I do specialize in native plantings. Um, But I can do anything. I can do a screen between you and your neighbor, which is really my most requested thing. Nobody wants to look in their neighbor's yards and drainage. I'll do a drainage project. But my favorite would be, you know, of course, a bee garden, pollinator garden, um, flower borders, anything to do with flowers and shrubs and trees. I can design it. And then I have people do the work for them, install it. And I even do maintenance and I work in the greater Baltimore area.
0: Great. So for your clients, you say you design, install, and build, you have a crew working with you. It's not just you, correct? Yes.
1: I have a crew that I call on, but you know, I kind of work on my own for the uh, first design um, process. And then I Pull in who I need to pull in. It could be an electrician. It could be a stonemason, a carpenter, um, somebody who can grade a property. So whatever I need, I hire and I supervise them to make sure the work is done properly.
0: Wow, it's a great service because so many of us, it's the hiring the right person and then being able to get that job done. That's, that's the key part.
1: Yeah, because so I stay with it from conception to the finished product.
0: Cool. So what led you to garden design? Was were you a a lifelong gardener, Claire? Were you gardening, um, you know, as a tot or when did you start?
1: Um, Well, I've I've gardened all my life. I can't even remember when I started. You know, I have always done it and I love doing it. I love digging in the dirt And I graduated from college um, with my degree in sociology, not thinking I could really put uh, a gardening career for me. But, you know, I started in the business world. I worked for the phone company and I hated it. Um, And I said, I really want to be outside working in gardens designing gardens so I started working with a um, landscape design company and I worked there for 17 years and this was a full service company that does lawns um, you know maintenance everything and then after a while after 17 years I was like you know Claire you can do this all by yourself and make more money And that's what I've done. I started my own business and I had made all these contacts through my years with the landscape design company. And then I just started doing it on my own. And now my husband, who is out of work from, you know, with COVID, uh, I got so busy With my landscape work, that I said, "Come on, you help me." So he's been helping me at different jobs.
0: Wow, it's great that you can pull him in for that. And so, your sociology degree does that come into play at all? Say with working (laughs) for with clients and and customers.
1: Yeah, of course it does. It it has um, greatly helped me with client relationships, and I also worked with. the phone company a long time ago in the business world and I worked in customer service and they taught you how to talk to people you know like the customer's always right etc but it really gave me a good background to go in and talk to people because I talk to all kinds of people I go in their house and talk to them i have actually made great friends of some of my clients over the years. So that background in customer relations um, has really stood me in good stead. So in
0: addition to your garden design and installation and maintenance, you are also a garden speaker and author, correct?
1: Yes. Um, I write a blog called The Garden Diaries and It's all about what's happening in the garden. Uh, It could be a blog about garden trends, garden cooking. I just did one on pumpkins, how to grow winter squash and pumpkins. And I included some recipes. Um, But whatever is happening in my garden, what I'm growing, what I'm excited about. um, It could be a spotlight on a new plant or shrub. Um, whatever I um, come up with, and I never run out of subjects. I'm always, I have too many subjects that I can't write about. So I, I love to do it. And I write about, um, I also write articles for magazines. And I also um, speak at Garden Club, um, different groups like civic groups. I go to flower shows like the Philly Flower Show I've spoken at, uh, the Seattle Flower Show I've spoken at, and so I get invited to different events to uh, speak about gardening and it could be about landscape design. I'm also a floral designer, so I do a lot of demonstrations on floral ranging. So, I know my hat seems like it's in all these different rings, um, but I like to mix it up. I just don't want to do one thing, and that's design gardens. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I do, which is my favorite thing of all, is garden travel. So I've organized um, two or three trips a year, and I go to different uh, countries. It's always international. It could be... Uh, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland. I'm going to Portugal in the spring, in March, and we just go to different gardens. And I usually have a group of like 20 people, of like-minded, garden-loving people, and we just uh, get a bus, we stay in hotels, and we'll take two weeks and go to every garden that we can... um, have in a certain radius and you know it's so much information for me. I take so many pictures from these trips and then when I get home I write about them.
0: Hmm, That sounds like a a wonderful win-win situation for you and hopefully uh, we'll be past this COVID situation next March so you can resume the tours. Yeah, I'm sure this year was kind of a bummer to miss out on that.
1: Yes, I had to cancel two trips, one to Portugal and one to Ireland. So I'm rescheduling them for next year.
0: Hmm. Well, that's good that hopefully that can be all back on schedule. And you had mentioned your floral designing passion. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have participated in the White House Christmas decorations um, in several years in a row in the past. Can you describe some of that experience?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, you just apply to the White House. There's an application online and you apply in July and August. You find out in October if you've been accepted. Um, You send information about what kind of work you do, pictures of your work. Uh, If you're a floral designer, you're more likely to get picked because course you have experience in decorating. So I've done it three times for two different administrations and I just go to Washington. if, If I am selected, stay in a hotel and this is all on your own dime. You pay for your travel, your food, your hotel and then you stay. Once you stay in your hotel you just go to the White House for a week every day Um, It's like nine to five and you just decorate whatever needs doing. It could be making bows, it could be hanging balls on a tree, it could be making wreaths, um, anything that they ask me to do. So I've done that three times and I have applied this year and I have not heard if I have been selected. So we'll see. Hmm.
0: Yeah, well, do share photos if you if you do get picked for this year. We'll be uh, interested to see a little preview of that.
1: Yeah, that's my most read blog ever is when I decorate the White House and I show all these pictures of it.
0: Yeah, definitely, the behind the scenes is is def is for sure the most interesting part.
1: Yeah, and that's probably my most popular talk is the decorating behind the scenes. Um At the White House, a lot of people are curious to know how it 's done mm-hmm. and so forth so that 's one of my most popular talks
0: and obviously it 's a new and different theme, depending on uh, yep. the designer and whoever's there every year. Do you get to have any hand in those decisions
1: um i don 't come up with the theme the um they hire the White House hires a design company located in Washington, D.C. Um, And that company works on the designs all year long. They come up with, you know, plans for every room. And then they take all that stuff to the uh, White House, meet with the First Lady. She has to approve everything. So they already have decided what's going to be done. Um, But once you get there, they do give you some leeway. Like, for example, I did the blue room mantle. Blue room is the big main room um, with the big Christmas tree, the 38 foot tall Christmas tree. So they said, Claire, do this mantle. This is what your materials are. But um, we want you to come up with what you think looks good. And so I did it all by myself with the materials selected. So you do have some uh, design expertise that they want because you know these designers they can't be doing every little um design that's going to be up at Christmas. So they're relying on their volunteers to help them out.
0: That's great that you can use some creativity in it that's not super micromanaged. Yeah, so yeah. That's yeah. wonderful. That is cool. So, um, your passion, of course, are honeybees, and mm-hmm. uh, I think your own home property is about two acres. Is that correct?
1: Two acres. Um, part of it's a meadow, and the meadow part I planted around my beehives, so they have plenty of forage material. I don't want them to have to fly too far away to find nectar. They can find it right outside their back door. So yeah, I have two acres. I have, it's two ponds, a big vegetable garden, um, fruit trees, fruit bushes, um, and I love to grow dahlias, which I use for flower arranging. So I have a big row of dahlias and I grow just about everything, every vegetable that we can eat during the summer and um, can during August and September and put it up. But my meadow, I created that when I put these h- highs out my back door and it surrounds them. It's goldenrod. It could be cornflower, zinnias, whatever, Uh, wildflower seeds I can come up with and I replant that every year so my honeybees have something to um, snack on.
0: Hmm. And so that's completely mowed down say in late winter and then seeded with annuals or do you have perennials in the meadow as well?
1: Um, It's all annuals except I do have some perennial milkweed So I um, mow it down. This is the thing. You don't want to mow a meadow down too early because I want that meadow to be up and producing seed heads for birds throughout the winter. So I mow it down in early March and then I reseed it. I prepare the ground. I reseed it with different um, annuals. And um it grows up again the next year. So th- it's a cycle that I do every year.
0: Hmm. I think we have a third guest on the the podcast. Yes. I can hear some barking. What is his name or her name? Um
1: I got two dogs. I have Tori and um Cody. Tori's a border collie, Cody is a mini Aussie, and they are my animal chasers. Hmm. So if you have deer And, you know, when I design a garden, that's the first thing I ask a customer. I say, do you have deer? Mm -hmm. And because that will determine ultimately what I recommend. And I said, you know, the best thing for deer is always a dog, an active dog, not a a dog that lazes around. So they keep the deer away from, from my garden. And a lot of people say, how do you, how do the deer not come in and wipe you out? Well, dogs and groundhogs, you know, groundhogs, they could rip a garden apart really fast. And my border collie, Tori, she just will go after them and she'll either kill them or chase them, chase them off. And as well, she'll do that with squirrels. So my animal problem Which could be huge out here in the country um, is very minimal because I have dogs.
0: That's fabulous, and you're in Baltimore County, correct? So not too far from Ledoux Gardens.
1: Yeah, actually, I'm I'm about 15 minutes from Ledoux. I'm in northern Baltimore County, and I can travel to Ledoux very quickly and in fact I'm working on a post on Ladue in the fall. So if you um, are in the county area, the Maryland area, you really should go to Ladue. It's looking beautiful right now. It's the topiary gardens and um, the fall foliage, the Japanese anemones, All the topiaries are really, really beautiful at this time of year.
0: Hmm. Yes, I can imagine. And for listeners, Ledoux is spelled L-A-D-E-W. So you could just Google Ledoux, and/or look out for Claire's post on Ledoux Gardens. Mm -hmm. And another garden that just occurred to me that people can visit in the next week or so—that's rarely open are are the white house gardens actually um so they're doing an open garden through the national park service which is the ones who administer the white house grounds october 17th and 18th so be on the lookout for those free tickets those free time passes to um, look at the vegetable garden and the new rose garden
1: yes i I've, I've been reading up on the new rose garden Um, design. and A lot of people were upset because um, some crab apples were removed. They weren't killed. They were removed to put someplace else. And I saw the design and I, I quite liked it. So I have visited the White House in the fall on their free day and it is very interesting to see the vegetable garden and to see the gardens um, you will see trees that are planted on the grounds. Each president plants a tree somewhere on the grounds. And there's they are signed so you can see which president planted what tree. So that's interesting in itself.
0: Hmm. And speaking of our topic uh, of bees, there are also beehives on the White House grounds. Um, and because it's federal property, it's allowed. Um, where some of the city regulations, um, would not allow, um, beekeeping inside Washington DC and in in many situations because of how close the houses are to each other. But on your two acres, how many, uh, hives do you have?
1: I have three, but it fluctuates up and down because bees die. Um, you know, after a winter I'll go out and say, okay, who's alive? um, and sometimes I'll have a few hives pull through. Sometimes they'll all die. And then I have to get some uh, new hives in the spring and install them. And that's that's kind of a funny process because I order the the bees through the mail. And, you know, you can get chickens in the mail. <laughs> so why not bees? So I order my bees and they the mail... The post office is very excited when they get them and they'll call me at 6 a.m. in the morning and say, Claire, you have to pick up these bees. They are scared to death of them. But, you know, it's just a uh, screened-in cage, maybe 12 inches long, full of about six or 7,000 bees with one queen. And um, they're just afraid that they're going to get out, which is impossible they can't get out. So I'll go and pick up my package and come home and I have my hive set up ready to uh, accept them. It's a brand new home. I spray my hive all with sugar water inside and I just take this box, pull out, there's a uh, lid with sugar water that's dripping into the mass of bees. I pull that out and then I just dump it. And that really is exciting because you just um, knock it on the side of the hive as hard as you can. And they all clump out into my hive. And that's how I install a hive of bees. It's very easy and anybody can do it. And the price for a package, which I order online, is around $130. So it's not a cheap hobby
0: and did you build the hives that you have or was that a kit or something oh
1: no i just get them i there's a um local beekeeper that sells hives and he um he'll put them together he buys like pallets of these um hives and he'll put them together and i'll go i'm not a carpenter i can't do that kind of stuff so i just buy a ready made hive and whatever else I need from him it could be a bee brush it could be a smoker um it could be my bee suit or veil and um so I get all my supplies locally if I can't find something from him then I'll order online there's lots of companies online but yeah I get all my um it's called woodenware and it's just a wooden hive that you put your bees in
0: Hmm. and you mentioned um your veil and your outfit do you totally suit up every time
1: oh no i the only time i really suit up completely is when i extract because you will have bees going crazy when you extract they will be zipping around all over i don't want to get stung so what i actually use is a paint suit that i get at home depot i don't want to put down $150 for one of these fancy dancy bee suits so I go to Home Depot and buy the paint suit which is very um all it it encloses you totally it even has feet um with a zip up and it's about $10 for that and I just use one of them a year and then I'll throw it away and get a new one but I do buy my veils and those are very important to keep your the bees off your head, your hair, your neck, because you don't want to be uh, stung on your face or scalp. That is extremely painful. Um, so I only suit up if I'm extracting. If I'm looking at the bees and ins- it's called inspecting your bees, I will put on a veil only. That's to protect my head. Um, but usually I don't have a problem. Um, sometimes one or two will come out and try to get up my pants legs. And, um, you know, that happens, but not too often. So I don't really suit up every time just for extracting.
0: Hmm. And do you get occasionally stung?
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I get stung, um, you know, maybe three or four times a year. and. It's really when I'm careless. And the thing about stinging, um, honeybee sting, is they rarely sting. If, if you're just walking around, they're not going to sting you. If you're messing with their hive, they're going to sting you. So a lot of people are scared of bees and getting stung because they say they're allergic. But really, everybody swells up um, if you get stung by any kind of bee. But a honey bee is really a docile insect um if you're stung by a bee, it's usually a hornet, yellow jacket, wasp those are the big three that will really nail you but a honeybee will only sting if you're doing what I'm doing, opening your hive, pulling out your frames of honey and looking at it. They don't like that, so they will sting me, and you know I've had. Um, Oh, I probably have had dozens of stings over the years, and um, it still hurts. But um, if you get the stinger right away, what happens is the honeybee will leave the stinger inside your skin. You take your fingernail and scrape it out. You want to stop the venom from pumping into your um, body. So, the sooner you get the stinger out, the better. And the honeybee is the only bee that will die when it stings you. Um, Hornets and other bees, they can sting you repeatedly. They are not going to die. So, honeybee, um, you know, they're docile. And when I design a garden, um, people say, well, I don't want bees around my patio, my pool, Um, you know, wherever they're. Uh, moving around or using um, the area because they'll get stung. But I tell them honeybees rarely sting.
0: And, you know, you get the occasional sting, but what about beekeeping with children? Is is that something that you would think would be a good hobby for children?
1: Well, I, I really think it's a great hobby for kids. Um, and I'm hearing more and more about um, during COVID that People are getting out and they want to get their kids out. So I think it's a good hobby to start with your children. I was helping, I was mentoring a beekeeper, a neighbor, and she has two small children, one five and one seven. And she suited them up. You know, they have veils and suits for kids also, the same, the size of kids, and um they were fascinated and it really is a great education for children to see how this all works how the insect world is organized how the the girls and they are females that make the honey it's not the boys um so that's another education for kids if you want to get them outdoors and doing something worthwhile and getting honey out of the process, it's a great hobby for kids. Um, they might be a little leery at first, so I would start with baby steps. I would just have them um, stay away for, you know, maybe 50 feet away. And then each time you open them up, have them come a little bit closer and closer until they get comfortable. If you're comfortable with uh, your bees, they will be comfortable.
0: And how much time, say a week, or do you check on them regularly in your schedule or is it less often?
1: Um, Well, they, bees need to be um, helped along or managed. So from extraction time, which is in August, I really don't do anything. Once I extract the honey, I set them up for the winter Um, I don't do anything to them except if there's a dearth of nectar, I might feed them sugar water. And that just means I'm mixing up um, granulated sugar in water, mixing it up till it becomes a syrup. And then I have a feeder that I put at the entrance and it drips out the uh, sugar water. I start doing that in the fall after... The frost because the frost will come and it'll kill a lot of the flowers that the bees are still snacking on so i'll do that in the fall and that that just takes a few minutes in the winter i'm not doing anything to them i might go up if it's snowing i will scrape any snow that's um, piled up in front of the hive and that's just a few minutes The bulk of my time is in the spring because in the spring, that's when they're building up their population. They're bringing in tons of nectar to make their honey. And I have to make sure that for number one, in the early spring, when they wake up and they're really busy out there, I have to make sure that there's flowers out there. If there's not, If it's really early, like early March, and there's nothing blooming, then I, again, will have to feed them until things start really popping with the flowers. And then in April, May, that's the bulk of my work. And that would be looking into the hive. Um, I want to make sure the queen is healthy. So I pull out my frame of um, honey, um, looking for her. I'm looking for um, eggs. I want to make sure she's laying eggs. I want to make sure there's new bees in there. I want to make sure they're bringing in nectar. So I'm inspecting that hive. So I'll do that maybe once a week. And that'll take about an hour during the spring to do that. So that's most of the time is in the spring. But then In the fall or August, that's extracting day, and it takes me all day to do that, and that just means I have to clean my buckets. I have to make sure the extractor is functional, clean. Everything has to be very clean when I extract the honey. I have to set it all up. I put plastic down in my garage. Um, I put out Um, soapy water, and it's always the hottest day of the year because I want to make sure that the honey is going to flow out of the comb. The hotter it is, the higher temperature, the easier that honey is going to flow. So I put uh, the frames in the extractor and frame is just think of a long honeycomb. I put that, the frames in the extractor. It has a little motor and it uh, spins and it, it flings the honey on the sides of the extractor. Think of a big trash can-like thing. The honey flows down to the bottom where there's a valve. I open the valve and the honey flows out into a bucket. So that is all day because I have to pull the, the frames off the uh, hives and then I have to extract it, then I have to clean up, and then I'm, always, I'm doing wax, um, I'm cutting up wax for melting and cleaning. So that is all day in August. So, you know, it does take time. It's not something where you're going to be hands off. You really have to pay attention to your bees during the spring, summer months.
0: And when you're extracting, do you bottle up that honey right away? Uh, Do you do anything else to the honey?
1: Well, what I do is um, I strain it. And when you strain it, it's just like um, a sieve that you use for cooking, but it it fits over a bucket. And it, it double strains it, and it strains out the particles of wax. I don't want any wax in there and dead bees and pieces of bees. So I don't want my honey to have dead bees in it. So I strain that out. But that's really the only processing that I do to the honey. And then once it goes in the bucket, it kind of has like a foam on top. Think of making jelly in a big pot and there's foam on top. That's kind of what it looks like. Um, So I want that foam to settle down. I sometimes I'll skim it off if it's really thick. And then I just let it sit for about a week. And then I'm out there with all my um, bottles. I have to get tons of bottles to do this. And I extracted 180 pounds this year, which is the most I've ever done, ever. And it was from two hives. The third hive didn't produce anything for me. So that's a lot of bottles. And uh honey is um uh it's by the pound. You get a like a 1 pounder, 2 pounder or 3 pounder jar. So I ha- I fill all those jars and that takes a lot of time is to fill your jars and then I make labels. I design my own sticky labels that I had printed and it has my name and it has some graphics and that kind of thing and then i have to put a label on it and then i sell it
0: Hmm. and for local honey there's some special benefits right for getting honey that's local to just your area as opposed to maybe when you would travel and buy some honey there
1: yeah local honey um Now, I don't know about any scientific studies, but it is supposed to help you with allergies. So think of it this way. You're eating honey that has been gathered. The nectar has been gathered from all the local flowers. It could be goldenrod, cornflower, zinnias. It's just this whole variety of flowers that they are collecting from. It's not like... In California in the almond orchards where the honey bee is just taking from nectar from the almond tree. This is like this mixture of wildflowers from my yard and they can go up to six miles away collecting different nectar. So I really can't label it with a name other than wildflower. And people are said it says that you sh- you should um, eat honey locally because that will give you an immunity to local allergies. It should build up your resistance to the allergens in the air locally. Um, I don't know how scientific that is, but um, a lot of people swear by it.
0: Mm-hmm. And that would have to be, of course, raw, unpasteurized honey or yep. or it wouldn't have that pollen in there.
1: Yeah, it has to be. Yes, because it does have pollen in it. Think of um, the honey. It has a lot of nutrients. It has trace amounts of like um, different things like zinc and whatever. There's a whole list of things that it has in it. It's not just don't think of it as just sugar water. It has so many good things in it. it, has the pollen. It will have some tiny bits of wax that I didn't filter out. Um, but po- the pollen, so you're eating pollen from the plants that surrounds you. And, you know, I I swear by it, I don't have problems with allergies. I used to um, very greatly, suffer greatly from allergies. But I eat a lot of honey.
0: That's great to know and that does kind of answer my question of I always see local honeys labeled with say it'll say tupelo honey or yeah. orange blossom and I always wondered how a beekeeper it's not like you're wrangling these bees no. telling them what type of <laughs> uh, flowers to go to and come back to so I always wondered how they knew that it was just specifically this kind of honey even though it might have a slightly different taste like orange blossom yeah. uh, versus um, honey locusts, say.
1: Yeah, well, honeys have um, a wide variety of taste and color. So if you're getting um, like buckwheat f- flowers, buckwheat flour produces the darkest, like it's almost like tar honey. And it's supposed to be really good for you, but I can't stomach it. It's really strong. Um, so that's the buckwheat. But then the clover, the orange blossom, they're very light colored. So think of the pollen and nectar from that type of flower. A clover flower has very light nectar, but a buckwheat flower has very dark nectar. So my honey, I compare it every year that I extract. Sometimes it's darker than others. Sometimes I think they're getting my goldenrod and it's, becomes a little darker, earthier tasting. Um, so that really determines um, the taste of your honey. But um, if you buy clover honey, they are getting it from a clover field. The honeybees are situated in a clover field, mm-hmm.
0: and usually they're going for the closest. Yep, uh, pollen the, sources. The
1: most, course. the closest, mm-hmm. most accessible nectar. They don't want to um, do more work than they have to.
0: I also heard that bees go for, on a run, only one type of flower. So say from one lavender to another lavender to another lavender, they don't do lavender, cosmos, goldenrod back.
1: Very good, Kathy. You've done your homework. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they they are um, consistent with that. So they're going to go to one flower only, exhaust that source, go back to their hive, and then they do the um, dance, you know, the little waggle dance. If they found a good source, they're going to um, um, spin around in circles. And and I have seen them do this. It's, it's pretty funny. And they'll waggle, and they will tell the other bees in the hive where that source is, where that good nectar is. And they will um, actually tell them how far away it is, where it's oriented, if it's northeast, whatever direction it is, they have this downturn art. they will tell them exactly where to go.
0: Hmm. And it's really interesting that they're going for one at a time and then kind of exhausting that source. So for our own home gardens, it sounds like we should plant on moss and not just onesie twosies.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I always tell people if they only have a container for their bees that they want the bees to come to, just plant one thing in it. Because the bees, again, they want to see a big, big block of it. If you have a garden, I would plant in blocks of three to four feet at least. So if you're designing a perennial garden, I would say that would take at least a nine to 12 plants to do a block that large, depending on the perennial. So do it in big, big blocks um, so they can see it, smell it, and use it. They're not going to come to um, one zinnia. They want a lot of nectar source.
0: Hmm. And what about early and late season blooms do you have any suggestions for that or maybe shrubs and trees in addition to what we think of as the annuals and perennials that that honeybees usually frequent
1: yeah um early and late i call that the shoulder season um that is when it's the hardest for them to find nectar so i've had my bees out in february if we get a, a a warm day, say over 50 degrees, they're out flying, looking for flowers. Well, what's blooming in February? Not much, but uh, Mahonia is a great uh, plant. It's not native but it's a great plant that they can gather pollen. And pollen is also food for um, bees as well as nectar. So you want things that are gonna bloom in the early, early season. Hellebores is another thing that will bloom very early. Um, Think of your bulbs like crocus, tulips. Um, And I'm sure we've all seen tulip with um, black anthers that's the inside part of the flower, they collect that pollen and it's black and they bring that home to their hive. So whenever I see black pollen, I know it's from a tulip. So you wanna think of things that bloom early as well as late because late is another time when it's hard for things, for the honeybees to find things. Um, So think of goldenrods. Asters. Oh my gosh, the asters in my garden look glorious now. Um the uh, uh, Eupatorium, uh eupitorium, asclepius, they bloom late. Um anything that blooms like in uh September, October, anemones. The anemones are blooming oh in a, they bloom in um september october mm-hmm. also um Cologne or turtle head that blooms really late so think of all these things that bloom um well i would say from now on to the end of the season that honeybees can collect nectar from
0: yeah, I know the blue mist shrub, the Caryopterus, I, I call that my bee ball. Yeah. <laughs> you can't even walk by it on a pathway because it is just covered with honeybees.
1: Yeah. yeah, Yeah. and butterfly bushes, all those things. Um, there's some uh, heliopsis, that's the false sunflower. Mm-hmm. They're blooming. Yeah, I just go out in my garden and see what's blooming and um, the bees are on it. They're collecting from it. Toad lily. That's another one. Tricertus. Yeah, yeah, that Mm. blooms actually in November, October, November. So they, the bees love it. It's a a tiny little orchid purple flower. Mm -hmm. um, And it's small, but the bees really cover it.
0: And it's a perennial and it's pretty frost proof versus a lot of the annuals that, you know, should we get an early frost uh, might end some of that blooming.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because um, here in Maryland, our frost, I don't know, Kathy, you have to back me up on this. My frost comes around a week before Halloween. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mid to late October is our average for okay. a first frost. Maybe not a killing frost.
1: Yeah. But a but light at least frost. A,
0: a light frost. Yeah.
1: And so as soon, that's my signal. As soon as the frost comes and it kills my annuals, then I'm uh, making sugar water syrup to feed my bees because I know they're still active. It's still over 50 degrees during the day and they will starve if I don't feed them unless they have enough honey uh, stored. So that's another thing. When I extract honey, I don't take it all. I have to make sure that they have enough left in their hive to survive the winter. So that's my balancing act. I want to make sure they have enough left and I don't take it all. I can't be greedy because if I'm greedy and take all their honey, they will starve and then I have to buy a new hive in the spring. Hmm.
0: And that's great advice not just for bees, but for a lot of cultivation in the garden is to not always take all, like not yes. all the seed heads, yeah. not not all the fruits off a tree to to use what you can and then leave a portion.
1: Yeah yeah and that is so true true with bees. Um, I want them to live through the winter and it's the only insect uh, honeybees the only insect that lives through the winter in its full form. Uh, Other bees and insects they're either they're larva form but honeybees They will live through the winter, and if it's uh, zero degrees outside, that hive is 95 degrees inside. They keep it warm by beating their wings. So that hive, I want to make sure they have enough food in there to continue to beat their wings and keep it warm, because they can starve and then freeze to death.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that it takes a ton of energy. Yep. So the extracting device that you described yeah. earlier, um, do you own that or do you share one? Because you only sound like you might use it once a year. Yeah. <laughs> or even even once a season um, with, a, say, a local honeybee, honey keepers club. Yes. Um, share one of those or pass it around, or or do you want to have it sanitary and just for your own use?
1: Well, I used to share it. I belong to a bee club, and I recommend anybody who keeps bee to join one. All our meetings are on Zoom right now, and I learn so much from more experienced beekeepers. And when I say that, I've been doing this 20 years, but there's beekeepers who've been doing it a lot longer. And they know more than I do. So I can go to them for help. So I used to share it because uh, extractors are expensive. Um, But I got tired of sharing and it wouldn't work or it was dirty when I got it. So I bought one and it was $400. Um, It was well worth it. And um, it's motorized. I just um, plug it in. You turn it on to spin it. Um, So you you don't have to do that right away. I would say if you start out with beekeeping, get the clubs uh, extractor and make sure you really, really want to do this. But since I've been doing it so long, um, I decided to buy one on my own. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's great advice to to try it out for your first year Yeah, so you know how much work it is and you don't have to put that full investment in right away. Um, is there any new technology coming on the horizon for beekeeping that you're like, oh, I want this for my hive?
1: Oh, yeah. I want a flow hive. And everybody, um, it was the Facebook darling for, oh, two years. And flow hive just simply means it was these guys in Australia they invented this hive where the um, there's windows in the side. So you can look in and they're covered with plexiglass. So you, don't worry, the bees won't get out. But you can see how they're doing. Um, are they bringing in the right amount of nectar? Are they bringing in pollen? Um, and the flow hive, also, they have these special frames. Remember, those are the honeycombs. And instead of me pulling out a frame and putting it in the extractor, which is a lot of work, they can um, just flip a switch and it splits the frame apart inside your hive, And it releases the honey. It actually cracks the wax that's on top of the honey. And the honey starts flowing out. And it comes out a spout, into a jar which you put in front of your beehive so that is a a brand new it's you know been around for about five years and i actually mentored a friend who has a flow hive and it's pretty cool but it's really expensive um another thing that i i use is a um a bluetooth battery Um, probe that you put in your uh, hive, it measures the temperature of the hive. And so I can pick up in sitting in my house, the temperature inside my house hives outside. And that's really important because if I notice in the middle of the winter that the temperature is fluctuating, going down, that tells me they're not doing well. And I might do something to help them like feed them sugar. Um, And there's also one other thing. It's a, a scale you can put under your hive and it weighs the hive. So think of this in the spring. Oh, it may weigh 60 pounds. But every time they're bringing in nectar and um, creating this honey, it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. So you know that this hive is, they're working hard and it might be time to extract it. So those are the three things that I can think of that I would like to have. they're expensive. It's not necessary. You can do all this without it, but it's just you know these um, different technologies that make your life a little bit easier.
0: Mm-hmm. They do sound pretty cool. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if if I had an unlimited budget, I'd have a I'd have ten flow hives.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And all that honey.
1: And all that honey. <laughs> yeah, yeah
0: the best. Right. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for sharing about your beekeeping experiences and letting beginners know how easy it is and, and what the process is. And how can people contact you?
1: Um, well, they can contact me um, by going on my website, and it's Claire And you can there's a contact form on there they can fill out. You can go on my blog. Which is thegardendiaries.com or .blog, I should say, and you can contact me through that. You can email me. My email is boy one at comcast.net. Um, you can go on my Instagram feed, which is um, Belclare. The Garden Diaries. Belclare is just a street I live on. Um, so any of those methods work for me. I'd love to talk to you. If you have any questions, um, I would love to help you out. If you need somebody to mentor you for beekeeping, I could help you find a mentor too.
0: Wonderful. It's so generous of you, Claire.
1: Oh, I love being on, I love talking about bees and it's great cocktail conversation. Um, Anytime I'm at a party and somebody knows that I'm a beekeeper, I have instant conversation with them. (laughs) They want to know everything about beekeeping.
0: Yeah, honeybees are such fascinating creatures.
1: They are. They are. And you never learn everything about them. I'm always learning something new.
0: That sounds like a wonderful hobby to have in addition to gardening.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's all part of gardening, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like an offshoot of gardening.
0: Thank you again, Claire.
1: Thank you for having me, Kathy.
0: Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy-Gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. Aster's Plant Profile Asters are a hardy perennial that mostly bloom in late summer and autumn in the Mid-Atlantic region. Asters are native to Europe and North America. There are over 600 species in the Asteraceae family. They are deer-resistant, easy to grow, and vigorous plants. The flowers are daisy-like in shape and come in shades of white, pink, lavender, and blue with a yellow center. The most popular variety is the New England Aster. Other popular astra varieties include Woods Blue, Monk, and October Skies. Their use in the garden is mostly as a filler plant and borders. They tend to get leggy and flop, so stake them or place them next to a plant or other feature that they can lean on. Look for some of the shorter, bushier cultivars to avoid the flopping. You can also try pinching them or cutting them back in late June to control their height. Asters prefer full sun and well-drained soil. Once established, they are fairly drought tolerant. They attract butterflies, pollinators, and make good cut flowers as well. I wanted to let you know about some upcoming webinars that we are hosting through Washington Gardener magazine. They'll all be held via Zoom and once you register you'll get a confirmation and a link to the Zoom connection. If you can't participate live in the webinar you'll be able to access the recording for a couple weeks after they take place so don't worry if the date doesn't work for you. Our next one is Sunday, October 4th at 2 p.m., and that's Dealing with Deer and Other Mammal Pests in Your Garden. Uh, There is a registration at washingtongardener.blogspot.com. If you just go to the search field in the upper left and enter webinar or webinars, uh, you should see the last few webinar listings and a link for the registration there. All the webinars are um, a low fee of $10 each. And the next one after that is Sunday, November 1st at 2 p.m. And that's small trees and large shrubs for urban and small gardens. And our final one for the year is Sunday, December 6th, again at 2 p.m. A truly green holiday, a talk on seasonal plants with a bulb forcing demo um, in addition. And that's a little bonus there to get some nice flowering plants inside in late winter if you force them around the holiday season. Um, I also wanted to put it out there that I am speaking to many garden clubs this COVID pandemic season via Zoom. And you can contact me for speaking to your club or group through greatgardenspeakers.com. My listing is under Kathy Jentz and my last name is spelled J-E-N-T-Z. Thanks for listening. For this week's What's Blooming in the Garden, I thought I'd share two native plants in the aster family that are blooming all over my garden even where i didn't plant them those are white snake root and white wood aster and from the name obviously both have white flowers they're also beloved by pollinators i see a lot of tiny native bees and flies on the flowers they are fairly tall two to three feet they bloom in part shade and sometimes even full shade and they don't mind the dry conditions under my oak trees as well so it's one of those native plants that kind of pops up you know every once in a while throughout the garden if you let it recede uh, especially the white snake root um, white wood aster a little less and might need a little more sun for for full blooming and doesn't even mind full sun and dry conditions but both plants have their place in the fall garden And they're easy enough to pull and discard a few if they're getting to be too big in numbers throughout your garden. White snake root and white wood aster, a nice exclamation point in your fall garden borders. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardner, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.